before dawn, milk cows work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. That's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. And uh, today we're going to be giving a bit of a lesson on globalism. Um, It's going to be a little different show today. Uh, Today's not going to be quite the same uh, kind of analysis that I normally give because I actually look at it like I'm a student of global this whole concept of globalism as well. And... uh, I I came across a, a YouTube video, and the YouTube video blew me away. It just blew me away, and I'm going to recommend that people check this out. It's called, this is the title of it, it's called Globalization is About to Collapse, Here's Why. And it's by a YouTube channel called Pike Productions, and we're going to go through that, because... You know, we've been talking a lot about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and we've been talking about Davos and what goes on there and all of these different things, which I think are extremely important. But I also think it's really valuable to understand better the good of globalism or how we got here. And like anything, whether it's the Patriot Act or um, anything else. You know, in the wake of 9-11, for example, we got this Patriot Act. And we signed off and said, we'll give up some of our civil liberties temporarily. Well, temporarily became permanent. And it led to, you know, James Clapper not wittingly eavesdropping on every one of us Americans. And so there's that. But then there's also the um, COVID restrictions. Just 15 days to, to slow the curve or flatten the curve. And a little bit of social distancing. Uh, we'll just, we're going to ask you to wear the mask. Uh, then it became, you know, we're not mandating you to get the vaccine. But if you don't get the vaccine, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your health care. You're going to lose your livelihood. You're not going to be able to send your kids to school. 
the kids aren't allowed to go to school. You got the teachers unions involved. It's it's almost like every single time Americans decided to have a gentleman's agreement with the government. The government spits in their face and rips them off blind. It's sort of exactly like you know this whole thing about oh take your needy your poor. Okay, we're going to welcome you with open arms across the border. Because, you, you know, the next thing you know, millions of people start flooding in. It's like, no, no what, what, what's all this about? You know, just because I gave one pigeon, you know, a breadcrumb doesn't mean I want to be my whole day at the beach ruined by a whole flock of seagulls that just want to eat all my Doritos, right? I mean, it's, it's you give an inch and take a mile, and somehow it's always the liberals that figure out how to exploit it, not only for political gain and power, but because they hate America. I mean, you know, what was it? Uh, the Golden State Warriors. I remember they just got an award. And um, next thing you know, you got President Biden taking a knee in front of the team. And I'm like, you do realize, I, I know you're stupid and everything, but you do realize that taking a knee is a basically you spitting on the American flag. You're the commander-in-chief for crying out loud. Act like it. Since when does the commander-in-chief take a knee and face in the face of a flag? The American flag. Now, I'd rather have a president that actually walks out on stage before he gives a great speech and hugs the flag and kisses it. That's the kind of leader I want. Call me old-fashioned. I'm just so sick of it. And, you know, the thing is, is that despite how bad the Bushes were, in the, you know, in, in the last bit of time, we've learned, you know, with John Kerry, for example, that he is the worst negotiator on the planet. I've always said that I'd rather have a horse trader from Wyoming, a cattle rancher from Wyoming or Nebraska or Iowa, negotiate my deals more than John Kerry. Because the Iran nuclear deal was, and the JCPOA was the worst deal on the planet. And his little sidekick, Wendy Sherman, some academic professor, couldn't negotiate her way out of a paper bag if her life depended on it. But there she is, you know, with all of her doctorates and all this crap. They can't figure it out, what's right for America. And so, to get started, we're going to play a couple of clips uh, just, just in general. It says, John Kerry, as climate czar, only Democrat... Only Democrats could pick a guy with six houses, 12 cars, two yachts, and a private jet to tell you that you should take the bus to stop pollution. Right? And then here he is. John Kerry needs to fly private to negotiate climate deals that help China pollute and prosper while tanking the American economy. That's the only deals he negotiates. Let's take, let's take a listen to this clip. And then we have to get started on this um, lesson of ours with respect to globalization. I found this uh, to be very, very useful and 
uh, it ties in nicely with what's going on with the World Economic Forum. But let's take a listen to this John Curry clip before we get to that. On that issue, pollution, I understand that you came here with a private jet. Uh, is that the, an environmental way to travel? If you offset your carbon, it's the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. Uh, I negotiated the Paris Accords uh, for the United States. I've been involved in this fight for years. I negotiated with President Xi to bring President Xi to the table so we could get Paris. And uh, I believe the time it takes me to get somewhere. I can't sail across the ocean. I have to fly to meet with people and get things done. But what I'm doing, almost full time, is working to win the battle of climate change. And in the end, uh, if I offset and contribute my life to do this, uh, I'm not going to be put on the defensive. On the- so he's not going to, you know, everybody's putting their life on the line when they go to work. Everybody's giving their sacrifices to, to pay the bills. But he married into it with the Heinz fortune. He doesn't even need the money. And altruistic, my but because the Paris Accord was something that Trump felt the need to pull out of immediately because it was bad for America, where America had to go green now, where China didn't have to go to green for, for a long time, for like 2030. So, you know, it's just he's so busy negotiating deals that don't have America. Don't, they don't put America first. Let's put it that way. But I actually think that John Kerry is mental. I think he's gone bonkers, just like Al Gore did. Think about it. We had a choice between George W. Bush, who was dumb as a rock, and then you got these anti-Americans like John Kerry and Al Gore on the left, both of which became these climate whacks, wacko, whack jobs. And every one of their predictions, every one of their predictions has been wrong. Every one of them. Everyone, Plymouth Rock is 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 a landmark up in Massachusetts or somewhere, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and it's still above sea level. <laughs> you know, it's not sinking. They didn't have to move it. You know, but here here's uh, John Kerry touting himself as one of the few select people in the world to save the world. And when you- Remember, it was Al Gore that said he invented the internet, by the way, right? These are real wacko dudes. Very wacko. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and um, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy, tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. No, that's not where we are. Climate is a hoax, you moron. Climate is a hoax. That's what it is. And a lot of good science is coming out indicating that the temperatures haven't risen in any significant way and not necessarily related to CO2 emissions. 
this whole thing is a way for, just like COVID, just like carbon footprints, just like ESG scores, just like diversity, equity, and inclusion, just like, you know, all these different agendas, these are all being pushed forward against the American will. When we learn more and more about the history of globalism, you're going to see how the evolution of globalism impacted populations and things like that. And you're also going to understand better how these things are being exploited. Like, for example, to make my point, I'm, I'm going to say that when you look at the Patriot Act, you know why the Patriot Act was proposed, right? It's, it doesn't take a lot of uh, craziness to think how, why we got that. It was 9-11. The real question is, why did 9-11 happen in the first place? But that's a whole different story. But 9-11 happened, and then in comes the Patriot Act, because people wanted to use the FISA courts and wiretap international phone calls, which then became like, you know, domestic phone calls. And it just became like this blooming onion, right? Exploding. And everybody was pretty much being tapped. And they were then using and tapping into Twitter and Facebook and social media and CIA and FBI and all their investigations were tapping into it. And, you know, like I said, CIA and the State Department have been using USAID and, and NIH to buy inf- and influence propaganda. And they've been meddling in foreign, av- foreign countries' at, uh, elections. And they've been using... You know, you take like Tedros. Tedros is a murdering thug from a tribe in Ethiopia. And he killed all the heads of all the other tribes. He used USAID money to do that. So the money we gave to Ethiopia was controlled and guided by the CIA's uh, influences and State Department's guidance to go ahead and choose one warlord over another. It just so happens that that warlord that killed everybody like a terrorist and who's on a terrorist watch list is now the head of the WHO, the World Health Organization, Tedros. So my point is, is that we have been meddling and election rigging in other developing nations for decades and decades. I mean, that's in essence what helped get JFK shot killed. Just ask Frank Sturgis or someone like that. I mean, it was uh, against Castro, anti-Castro and Castro uh, revolutionaries. And that kind of thing was going on then. Since the beginning of the CIA, it's been going on. And Herbert Walker Bush was part of just about all of that. And so what I'm saying is is that um, we've now taken those tradecrafts, those things that we've learned, and we've turned them in on ourselves. And we're now rigging our own elections, and we're using our own agencies, whether it's the Department of 
um, education to indoctrinate our children or the uh, the homeland security to uh, coerce uh, cities into becoming sanctuary cities or doing the right thing with uh, you know opening up the borders not which would be the wrong thing but the right thing for them and rigging our FBI systems to the point where you know, Joe Biden uh, gets a pass. The FBI doesn't have any interest in looking into the documents that are at his houses, but they want to go ahead and raid Mar-a-Lago, right? So it's, what? What is that? That's two standards of justice. And it goes on and on, whether it's the IRS targeting Tea Party groups or, or MAGA groups. And then you have these altruistic corporation, corporations, these multinational corporations kissing the ring of Klaus Schwab because the WEF and Davos and, and Klaus Schwab are basically the intermediaries, the brokers, the uh, hub for conferencing between governments who want to skirt around their constitutions and multi, large multinational corporations who can afford a seat at the table can certainly then afford to influence people, and they're carrying the dirty water. Just like when socialist Democrats in the South, uh, state and local Democrats, wrote the Jim Crow laws and used and partnered with private industry to segregate the South. Those were Democrats that did that. Just like George Wallace was the Democrat from Alabama. Uh, a governor that stood in the doorway. So the Democrats have a long history of segregation, and they've been on the wrong side of history with regard to equality. And now they want to choose equity, but equity is just another name for discrimination and segregation and separating and dividing a nation. And that's what equity is about. And California is probably the kingpin right now of doing that kind of thing. But John Kerry thinks he's the man. Now listen to Al Gore. Listen to what Al Gore has to say. This guy just sounds like an absolute whack job. Enough already. Enough. And I don't want to get sidetracked onto what needs to happen, but we need to scale up climate finance but we need desperately to scale down anti-climate that's the new thing what they want to do is scale up they want to promote and uh, subsidize uh it's sort of artificial capitalism right how could you lose if you have all the american taxpayer dollars going toward green like electric vehicles and pummeling and you know and banning Fossil fuel cars, even though we know that the world doesn't have enough precious metals to to mine to sustain a 100% use of electric vehicles. Right now, we're operating at around 10%. In China, it might be around 20%. And they could barely keep pace with the demand on that. Could you imagine? We don't have the power grid for half these things. And the same people, whether it's Greta Thunberg or whoever, with some staged arrest in Germany, um, it's all a gimmick. It's all a hoax. We have so much more energy in fossil fuels. And you mix this with COVID lockdowns in China, 
The COVID lockdowns in China are affecting the supply chains to where we're struggling and looking for other ways to go to get our supply. And we depend too much on China. But yet China is, you know, having a housing crisis, an economic crisis, because they're, they have this zero COVID policy that, you know, and they're even talking about reinstating masks that don't work on planes that don't need them because they already have a filtration system. It's unbelievable what is going on in the world today. And if the World Economic Forum just continues to lie, why in the world are they not being banned or censored themselves? But they're never going to be censored or banned because they control the companies that do all the censoring. You know, Al, um, uh, so many of the newscasters, for example, uh, uh, from CNN and CNBC, Brian Stelter comes to mind, are all there getting their talking points and their uh, their marching papers from World Economic Forum to know what to say for the 2023 year, right? So it's it's pretty amazing. But that's uh, that's the kind of thing that we need to uh, get out of. Now, we're going to get back to the World Economic Forum, but we're going to start our lesson. This is a lesson on global globalism and globalization. Now... As everybody knows, when they listen to this show, they know how much I disdain globalism. I think it's enemy number one, and it's the worst thing that could ever happen, right? But we owe a lot of gratitude to globalization as well. And I want to start out with the end piece of this. I have four clips. Some are quite long, okay? And this is what I don't like to do. But I'm making an exception today because I want to share this with you, all right? Because not everybody's going to go over to YouTube and check out Globalization is About to Collapse, Here's Why, by Pike Productions. Nobody's, Not everybody's going to do that. So I'm going to play it for you on this show. But let's take a listen. This is, the, this is actually the fourth clip in a series of clips chronologically. But I'm going to play the fourth one first. Okay, let's take a listen. Globalization has done many amazing things. It has greatly reduced extreme poverty, provided more high-tech goods at cheap prices, and created the most rapid economic growth period in human history. But one of the byproducts of globalization is urbanization. Farmers can now use high-tech equipment for sowing, harvesting, and processing. The need for farmhands greatly decreased. Nearly everywhere on Earth, people left rural communities and moved to the cities for better job prospects. The dream of owning your own farm was replaced by the dream of becoming a yuppie. While this sounds inconsequential, it had a profound effect on birth rates. On the farm, kids are assets that provide free labor. In the city, kids are very expensive pets. As a result, birth rates plummeted across the industrialized world. We've talked about how globalization depends on access to safe seas, energy, raw materials, technology, and food. But I've saved the most important ingredient for globalization for last. People. For globalization to work, it needs a reliable supply of workers, consumers, and investors. And due to decreased birth rates, 
we're running out of all of those. When people are aged 18 to 65, they tend to be workers, consumers, taxpayers, and investors all at the same time. But that changes when they retire. Obviously, retired people don't work. But they also tend to reduce their consumption and stop investing. Much of their retirement funds are pulled out of the stock market and converted into bonds or cash. In most countries, they also receive some form of government pension. After decades of low fertility rates, there's going to be a smaller tax population to support these pensions. Assuming no changes are made to benefits, taxes must go up, which will reduce cash available for consumption and investment. Smaller investment pools means less technological innovation, and less consumption makes investing less profitable. Demographics and population... So now you see something clear right there. What, they're, what, the, what, what that's about is that's about... That's why we have open borders. So when you're opening the border, it's not just about importing voters. You know, that's just a byproduct. Like, while we're doing that, we might as well do that, right? That's what that's about. But it's this, it's this <clears throat> globalization... And so when we listen to uh, we listen to one of these uh, uh, World Economic Forum uh, speakers talk about how people would be living in urban centers. He was a German guy, and he was like, people are moving and living in, and then that's why you you have a, a recent uh, study where someone in London said we're going to break the city down into corridors and we're going to corral people so that you're going to live in a corral. And he bugs uh, kind of thing. Now, that's the, that's the you know, kind of like the jab way of talking about it. But if we want to talk about it like we're, we're studying this stuff, um, there is this evolutionary thing that happened where the opening of the seas and the uh, access to cheaper labor and, you know, all the different global, globalization of manufacturing, uh, where it sent a lot of our jobs overseas, um, has really changed the population. People moving to cities for jobs, they're basically like, if you live on the farm, five kids is better than two kids. But if you live in the city where real estate is expensive and square footage is a, is, is a real expensive proposition, um, you know, he called the children pets, right, in that in that video there, but in that audio. But he, he was basically saying it becomes expensive. And not only that, but it prevents you from working, and there's a lot of expense with child care and the whole host of things. So there's population decline. It's not just the liberal attack on Christianity, although that is another factor. Again, that's a side factor, but... You know, I was listening to that Salazar, Maria Salazar from Florida, and she was um, on the World Economic Forum, and she said this. I want to have you take a listen to this real quick. Overhaul of the immigration system, because not only we need those hands, like the Congress, like us, a senator was saying, but we need to also give dignity to those people who are in the country. And those are the people that I represent. We're talking about 13, 15 million people who are most of them Hispanics, I would say 85%, who speak my language, look like me, and sound like me, that are contributing with the economy of this country, and they live in the shadows. So it's time to seal the border, like she said, 
put order, let's see who comes in and who doesn't, and then turn around and give dignity. That doesn't mean path to citizenship. That means to include them and make them dignified members of our community. Thank you. So Tucker went toe-to-toe with her and uh, in, a, in a debate. And here it is. I said that I was right. for in favor of open borders and I wanted to. I talked to your Well, you just called last month for the amnesty for tens of millions of people who came oh, into this no. country and, illegally. And oh, you but see, you did because I read the legislation no, today. No, I did not. Actually, about and 20 I minutes ago I read you it. Have, yeah. Okay, I'm glad you did. And, yes, I, I did. and I will invite you to read it again because let me and then just give me 30 seconds and I promise okay. I'll give it to you in sound bites. The Dignity Act, which I presented last month, is an immigration reform law, probably the first one that the GOP has presented in a long time. Right. It has one of the strongest border security measures in the history of the United States Congress. Right, got it. But I, but it also provides amnesty for tens Wait a minute. of millions Wait, no. of people. Amnesty, amnesty is what we have now, Tucker. Amnesty is when you have more than 13 million illegals, listen to me, without paying for schools, for roads, or for hospitals. I am giving them dignity so they can start paying. uh, Now we're we're getting pretty deep into the talking points here. All right. So the point she's making is this. She wasn't doesn't want to give them path to citizenship or amnesty. I don't know how you not do that, though. I think that. Once you let them in, it's it's a, it's a open season, right? But there's no way to stop it. But what she's trying to really say, and that's why she's also at the World Economic Forum or Davos, is what she's really, and she's a Republican from the Miami area, and what she's saying is she wants these people to not just come in and work for cheap off the books, and then take their cash and send it back to their families who didn't make it up here yet and put them into a legitimate system where they become workers and they can actually then sort of contribute to the cost of their education and the cost of the roads that they drive on and the you know that kind of thing so there there is some merit to that if you just keep an open mind to that, I, I don't know. I haven't given it enough thought there because I see a, so many problems with this demographic change in general. Just it's not natural. It's not evolutionary. It's square peg round holeish, And I think that there's a lot of problems associated with this. Plus, we're not properly vetting any of these people that are coming across. That's uh, terrible. Open borders is nowhere, nowhere to be. No place. She's saying lock the border and have legal immigration. I don't think anybody's ever complained that we wanted legal migrate, you know, legal Im- immigration systems. And and we need people to come in and contribute if we're having a declining population. Elon Musk, for example, is at odds with the World Economic Forum on this one point, which is the World Economic Forum wants less population. Elon Musk says that's the detrimental, uh, that's an existential threat. We need more population. And that uh, audio that we just played um, says that people are really important to make this thing work. Who's going to pay for these um, Social Security and retirement uh, funds and pensions and things like that? How is that going to be sustainable if you don't have a workforce? So there's a lot of issues. 
A lot of people in third world countries that aren't being very uh, nearly as productive as they could be. That's why the globalists want to move these third world uh, workers into developing nations. And that audio goes on to say uh, that um, that uh, developing nations are going to have a real need to bring people in to just buy the products off the shelf. And so you're going to have cities like Paris saying, come, move to Paris. Once their population starts to decline so much, the businesses start to shutter because there's not enough people demanding the products off the shelves. So there's a whole lot of issues that are going to be going on. Now let's get back to the basics and let's listen to the history of globalization because it's kind of an interesting um, dynamic. Raw materials were extracted in Central Asia so that individual components could be manufactured in Taiwan, which used machinery from Central Europe to meet design specifications that were drafted in South Korea, China, or the U.S. to reach final assembly in East Asia and made compatible to run on operating systems designed in the U.S. Components used in a single iPhone rely on over 200 individual suppliers. To say that your device had to make over 100 border crossings before being unboxed is probably an understatement. This complex web of commerce is achieved through the process of globalization. Safe shipping lanes and a global commitment to international trade make this all possible. Globalization has increased the quality of life for more people than any other economic system in human history. People around the world have access to more goods at lower prices than ever before. Best of all, globalization lifted over a billion people out of poverty. No other economic policy has done more for the extreme poor than globalization. And it's all coming to an end soon. This video is largely sourced from the book, The End is Just the Beginning, by Peter Zion. It is linked in the description. Global trade is nothing new. Anyone who even knows just a little bit about history has heard of the Silk Road or the Triangular Trade. However, these early globalization trade networks lacked safe and secure passages. Piracy and kleptocracy made foreign trade incredibly expensive and risky. Global trade was isolated within specific European empires. The English, French, Spanish, and others all had their own trade networks and rarely traded with one another. Of course, they would steal from each other during times of war, which happened often. The lack of cooperation between European powers made it easier for pirates to roam the Caribbean and Mediterranean seas. If ships could evade pirates, their cargo may still be plundered by rival nations. It was quite common for competing European powers to steal each other's cargo. The English would steal from the French, the French would steal from the Spanish, and pirates would steal from everybody. Clashing colonial powers would make foreign trade unreliable, and in turn more expensive. This would be the norm of global trade, until 1945. By the end of the Second World War, there would only be two global powers, each with their own sphere of influence. But unlike the USSR, the United States would emerge as the world's sole naval power. While the Soviets would hold Eastern Europe and Central Asia, America would have the oceans. All of them. When Western Europe had their turn with controlling the global oceans, that power was used exclusively to enrich the mother country. 
A mix of colonization and state-sponsored monopolies were all designed to generate wealth for the homeland. When Americans took control of the seas, they had a different idea. Scarred by the horrors of the world wars, the United States decided to use their naval superiority to grant free trade across all nations, including their very recent enemies. Everyone could participate in this new, free, global trade network. The high cost of providing a global navy to keep shipping lanes safe would be paid entirely by the Americans. There is only one catch to participate in this free global trade network. You would have to be firmly anti-Soviet. Despite this geopolitical mandate, a new era of global trade was unleashed. The days of cargo ships being stolen by rival nations or pirates was over. If your country lacked natural resources or food, it could now be easily imported, without needing to bow to a European colonial master. And this was just the beginning. The free trade network would eventually be opened up to communist China in 1979. The golden age of globalism had arrived. In this new era, Brits could play Nintendo, Americans could drive Volkswagen, and Indians could drink Coca-Cola. But the golden age of economic growth wasn't solely due to the American Navy providing safe passage around the world. The World Bank and International Monetary Fund were established to provide loans to nations that missed out on industrialization. Underdeveloped nations could get low-interest loans to rapidly industrialize. Of course, these loans came with political strings attached, notably anti-corruption and anti-Soviet agreements. Nonetheless, these loans, in conjunction with free global trade, ushered in an age of prosperity for both the developed and underdeveloped world. Wealthy countries could offshore manufacturing to nations with cheaper labor costs and fewer regulations. The underdeveloped nations would be flooded with new job opportunities, and wealthy countries could get more goods at lower prices. Nearly everyone outside the Soviet sphere saw their quality of life improve. This era saw the fastest global economic growth in human history, at least until the next era of globalization. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. By the late 1980s, the Soviet Empire began to crumble. Eastern Europe and Central Asia were now allowed to join the globalized economy. While the transition from a command economy into a free market economy made for a rough decade in the 90s, they would be winners in the long run. With a reunited Germany and a strong belief that international trade results in international peace, EU investments flowed towards the East. The former Warsaw Pact countries saw an explosion of growth and even had higher growth rates than their Western neighbors. Manufactured exports was the name of the game for these countries, and their wealth would rise. But the end of the Cold War wasn't the only thing that enhanced global trade. There was this cool new technology called the Internet, uh, what, what is internet anyway? Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network, mm-hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. What do you mean? That's big? How does one? Not, what do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? The internet made transcontinental communication cheaper than ever before. The cost of transforming a national corporation into an international one was radically cheaper. But big corporations were not the only beneficiaries of the internet. 
Now, small artisans could access the global market to find new customers, new suppliers, and new investors. Eterig guitarists could attract audiences in the Netherlands. Dominican painters could find... So you get the idea there. And uh, I want to just skip ahead and... um, and get to who prospered, what countries prospered. And they have this thing called a, an elephant graph, and it's shaped like an elephant. And basically, a lot of these developing nations with cheap labor sources increased dramatically and or, uh, between, say, 1988 and, say, 2008. This chart charts um, this huge growth, but... Where things went south was for de- for developed nations, first world nations, and the middle class workforce. And so, listen to this. It's, it's kind of interesting. Tremendous growth. These are the developing nations that became the real winners of globalization. India, China, Mexico, and Brazil are all well known for their growth during this period. But this growth wasn't limited to large countries. Smaller countries like the Dominican Republic, Lithuania, Panama, Angola, and dozens more also experienced impressive GDP per capita growth. Wealth generation from globalization was available to all, big and small. This exceptional growth rate brought about 1.1 billion people out of extreme poverty. Because of globalization, starvation and famines had become exceptionally rare. People no longer have to depend on local weather for good harvests. Fertilizers, high-tech agricultural equipment, and the latest advances in irrigation technology can now be easily imported. The amount of tonnage yields per acre skyrocketed for almost every crop in every continent. Does your country have poor soils for agricultural production? No problem. Imported food is cheap and plentiful. There is no need to toil on poor land when your country could specialize in something else. Because of global agricultural trade, every country in the world, with five tragic exceptions, saw a decrease in deaths caused by malnutrition. This all sounds like a pretty good deal, until we start to move further right along. Alright, so now here is... uh where trouble comes into paradise for America. Let's take a listen. The wealth growth takes a considerable nosedive. These are the low-skilled and semi-skilled workers in rich countries. The working class of the Anglosphere and Western Europe would not enjoy the same wealth growth as the rest of the world. And in some cases, quite the opposite. These people saw their careers shipped overseas to people who would do the same job for cheaper. Entire communities in the United States were left devastated by the results of globalization, creating a massive region known as the Rust Belt. The factories that were once so critical in winning the Second World War became shuttered in favor of cheaper labor in faraway places. Once thriving middle-class communities became ghettoized. This isn't unique to the United States. Communities throughout the Anglosphere and Western Europe have their own version of the Rust Belt. Places like Southern Ontario, Willagong, Wales, Flanders, the Rugerbeet, Nord-Pas-de-Calais, and the Basque Country have all felt economic hardship from globalization. 
Economic insecurity made the working class of rich countries hostile towards globalization. Their animosity is further compounded as we continue to move right along the elephant graph. On the furthest right end, we see the richest people in the richest countries getting richer. This is the class of people who have been able to truly tap into the wealth creation created by globalization. This part of the graph can be divided into two sections, highly skilled workers and the investor class. The growth of globalization meant that brands now have to compete with companies on the other side of the planet. To remain competitive in the global marketplace, they need highly skilled workers. The demand for engineers, researchers, marketers, designers, and other highly skilled workers greatly increased. As demand for these highly skilled workers increased, so did their salaries. On the very far right end of the graph is the investor class. When the world is undergoing unprecedented economic growth, it's pretty easy to turn a large pile of money into an even bigger pile of money. This led to resentment from the working class people in rich countries. To the people on the lower trunk of the elephant, it seems like everyone in the world is getting richer, except for themselves. While they lived in fear of unemployment, their fellow countrymen were enjoying exceptional wealth growth. For most of the G7 nations, a strong welfare system has been put in place. Even if someone loses their job due to globalization, they can still plan on receiving health care, their kids can still go to university at reasonable costs, and they themselves can receive new training to pursue a higher paying career. This is all paid by taxing the gains of the winners of globalization to fund programs for the losers of globalization. Every G7 country does this to a certain extent, except for one, which just so happens to be the one that pays for the global navy that makes this all United possible States. in the first place. Most US citizens do not have a favorable opinion of globalization. When asked if globalization is a good thing for their country, only 42% of Americans answered in the affirmative. And that's not too far off from the global country average, where only 48% of respondents think globalization is good for their country. While it would be easy to say, who cares what the stupid Americans think, it should not be forgotten that the American Navy makes globalization possible in the first place. Without it, the bad old days of piracy and theft from rival governments will make a comeback. The increased risk of stolen cargo translates into increased costs for consumers. While international trade can certainly exist on land within connected regions, shipping by sea has about one-twelfth of the cost compared to land shipping, assuming there's safe passage on the seas. When the Soviet Empire fell, the purpose of the global American Navy fell with it. America's global naval presence had one main objective. Keep the Soviets contained. Global trade security was just a side benefit. With the Soviets gone, the global U.S. Navy lost its purpose. The American public's frustration with globalization would become apparent during the 2016 presidential election. Near the end of his presidency, George W. Bush began the lengthy negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. These negotiations would be continued by Barack Obama and last his entire presidency. This would have been a massive trade deal that included 12 Pacific countries. Combined, these 12 countries represent about 40% of global GDP. However, the deal would face major opposition from two prominent presidential candidates. Nobody doubts that corporations have shut down in America and gone to low-wage countries. It makes sense to them. Why do they want to pay an American worker 
15 or 20 bucks an hour when you go to Vietnam. You know what the minimum wage in Vietnam is? It is 56 cents an hour. As Bernie Sanders said, Hillary Clinton voted for virtually every trade agreement that has cost the workers of this country millions, millions of jobs. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is the greatest danger yet. The TPP, as it's known, would be the death blow for American manufacturing. Well, Bernie would not make it to the White House, Trump did. The United States would formally withdraw from the TPP on Trump's first day of office. But scuttling the TPP wasn't Trump's only anti-globalization initiative. He would live up to his campaign promise on reducing trade with China by introducing new tariffs in 2018. Even with Trump out of the White House, his tariffs remain. President Biden has stated that he's open to reconfiguring these tariffs, but no action has been taken at the time of this video. The American public has a growing skepticism of globalization, and it's starting to impact elections. American taxpayers pay over $150 billion every year to keep the ocean safe for free trade, and voters are questioning if it's worth it. Globalization has been the best thing to happen to high-skilled workers in poor countries, but the worst thing to happen to low-skilled workers in rich countries. The frustration has led to an increased sense of nationalism and isolationism, not only in America, but in many parts of the highly developed world. And that was before the 2020s. Scientists in China are trying to determine if a new virus strain is responsible. So it gets into the whole COVID dynamic. That video is about a total run of uh, 32 minutes, really, 31 minutes. And I have to say, it's definitely something I would strongly recommend. Let's take a listen to uh, Donald Trump when he was at the World Economic Forum in 2018. Let's take a listen to his speech. I'm here today to represent the interests of the American people. The world is witnessing the resurgence of a strong and prosperous America. I'm here to deliver a simple message. There has never been a better time to hire, to build, to invest, and to grow in the United States. Regulation is stealth taxation. The U.S., like many other countries, unelected bureaucrats, and we have Believe me, we have them all over the place. And they've imposed crushing and anti-business and anti-worker regulations on our citizens with no vote, no legislative debate, and no real accountability. In America, those days are over. As president of the United States, I will always protect the interests of our country, our companies, and our workers. We are lifting self-imposed restrictions on energy production to provide affordable power to our citizens and businesses and to promote energy security for our friends all around the world. No country should be held hostage to a single provider of energy. America is roaring back, and now is the time to invest in the future of America. He was right. And uh, I also um, want to take a listen to this clip. This clip uh, basically uh, is um, Glenn Beck. All of you, when you have a crisis and they cre- they're creating all of these crises, 
When you have a crisis of food, when you have a crisis of money, people will just reach out for whoever is going to say, I have the solution. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, though, the one thing that's proven, that you've proven, and Russell Brand have proven, and others have proven, is that World Economic Forum, when you actually learn what it's promoting, is wildly unpopular. That's why the change in the media environment, you know, and it starts, of course, with radio, and but the Internet really takes it to another level, mm-hmm. means that the old regime... Um, struggles constantly. So why are they always talking about disinformation? It's because people like us are out here explaining yes. that actually that is what they want. They want they want the bugs, the not owning anything, and a move to low energy living. Great Reset, remember, was always just like, we're going to stop using fossil fuels and nuclear and reliable energy, and we're going to use unreliable solar and wind, and, and only whenever that is possible because of the weather. That was what the Great Reset was. And fundamentally, the organization is about what they call sustainability, what I think we would call basically making everybody much poorer. Yes. Yeah. Well, they have to go after the middle class. And that's what they're doing because the middle class is the their opposition. It's the middle class that's opposing. It's what that global... That, um, documentary was talking about people who are getting crushed the the workers of america and around the world the middle class is getting crushed by globalization because their jobs are going to these third world nations and the open borders are allowing this cheap labor to come in and it's really having a negative impact on your independence your liberty and then also justice we see two standards of justice we see this injustice of unelected officials mandating, regulating, and uh, it's the kind of thing we, we need to reject. Um, so it's not just enough globalization as an evolutionary thing, but it's the in- intrusion, it's the introduction of World Economic Forum doing a power grab. Like the Patriot Act on its face has some merit, but as soon as you get... Barack Obama wiretapping everybody's phones, it becomes something else. It becomes weaponized, just like our government agencies have become. And it's the liberals that are doing that. And right now, it's the liberals that are controlling the world through the World Economic Forum and all their money. And that's the problem. Well, that brings us to the end of the Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Be sure to check out buglecall.org, buglecall.org. is our main nonprofit. Make a donation over there if you can. It helps Red State Talk Radio and the Scott Adams Show. Use Red State over at mypillow.com. And we'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody. Grab a shovel, dig a hole a little deeper, just to bury my kids right up to there.